Welcome to SRG Offscript, the podcast where experts at Succession Resource Group unpack the latest industry trends, recommendations, and observations for independent advisors managing their practice. With no fluff and a little entertainment. In each episode, we'll discuss ways in which you can understand and leverage the value of your business, grow your business through M&A, but also through an optimized organizational structure, improve and protect your business to create a sustainable enterprise that can hopefully outlast you, and lastly, preparing for your eventual retirement and how to maximize that result. So, we encourage you to listen in with whatever beverage suits your preference, and let's get to the forefront of industry trends with a fresh perspective to help you achieve your business goals. The mergers and acquisition world is ever-changing. Deal-making, deal structures, the strategic and tactical thinking that can drive a deal, all continue to evolve. And if you are considering M&A for your business, you want to be on that cutting edge. Your host, David Grau, talks with his go-to man at Succession Resource Group for the latest in the world of deals. David, please introduce Parker Fino. All right. Well, welcome back to the session here today. I'm excited to have with me Parker Fino from our transaction and succession team here. Parker and I have had the pleasure of working together for year or two now working very closely together on projects and he now you know runs them independent of me and is now to the point where he's coming up with you know new and cool deliverables and resources that i frankly did not have the experience time or expertise for so i was excited to pull him in for this conversation and dive in and talk about the merger and acquisition market today what's been changing how these deals are getting structured we've talked a lot on this podcast thus far about succession planning, organizational planning, optimizing the value. Uh, We had Ryan Grau on where we talked about the valuation trends, how to build value in the practices, some of the key value drivers, detractors. We'll have him back on. We could very easily have done a part one, part two. In this case, though, we get to go deep on actual deal making. So without further ado, Parker, let's start with you, your team's role where do you guys fit in? Obviously, you know, the stuff that you are doing factors in counseling, consulting. I mean, these are big decisions. They're emotional decisions. Strategic thinking is certainly involved. It involves tax planning. It involves contracts. I mean, it's a whole bunch of different disciplines. So let's just start out with what in the world do you guys do on the succession and deal support team? What's a typical day in the life look like? Who are you helping? What do you do? Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks for having me, Dave. Uh, love the podcast. Of course, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, certainly happy to provide my input here. As far as my team goes, like you said, uh, we handle transaction advisory services. So that's everything from peer-to-peer acquisitions uh, through the deal support services and also exit plan design through our succession planning services. Uh, to your point, it is myriad functions rolled into one. There's certainly the emotional aspect, as well as the strategic and tactical consulting and support that we provide to the clients. Um, The basis of the services are really reliant on said consulting, much like many of our clients being uh, professional services uh, business owners. So really the advice, understanding what tends to work out well, what kind of unintended consequences there are for any given decision, financially modeling the estimated impacts of any given deal or succession plan that's being contemplated, 
And then just helping the parties that we work with understand all the options available to them so that they have informed decision-making capabilities and they can um, head into their transaction with a full understanding of, of how it should play out and what types of considerations need to be made. So you mentioned the transaction advisory services is the overarching theme for you, your team, and under that deal support as well as succession planning. I know being in these conferences, on webinars, having talked to advisors in the field and even you know field leaders, the word succession planning gets used kind of in a very general, generic fashion, not in a good or bad way, just used very generally to apply to a lot of different transaction types. For us internally in our nomenclature and you know, lots of folks who do what we do, would you bifurcate the deal support, the transaction stuff from the succession, Parker? Like, where do you draw the line? What's the difference between the two? Yeah, sure thing. So deal support is generally meant for disparate businesses, uh, one business owner to another. They're not working within the same practice currently, and they are just looking to acquire a retiring advisor, insurance insurance agent, accountant's yep. business uh, from afar, if you will. So that's usually what we mean on the deal support side, whereas succession planning is more internal focused. So uh, building a plan, a design for your internal team members to take over the business. Yep. Of course, with that said, we still evaluate the external sale outcome for the succession planning, just as another layer to ensure that you know the founder has all the information as far as what options are available to them. Uh, but that's generally the difference right there. Got it. Okay. And so as we think about this, I have just a general question to sort of point us in the right direction. You know, how are deals being structured right now? Like what's a normal deal look like? We should probably break that down maybe even into those two separate compartments to the extent you feel comfortable answering in a relatively succinct way. Let's start with the easier of the two in my mind. And that is like, what, what does a typical deal look like today for a typical advisor who wants to sell their business to a, mm -hmm. to a peer, to somebody in the industry, as opposed to the internal stuff that we'll come back to here in a second? Yeah, absolutely. So most commonly, the deals are structured in today's market as full sales accomplished through asset acquisition. Okay. Very commonly, there is some amount that is financed through commercial capital with the balance being uh, comprised of seller financing. From the tax side of things, a bulk of the purchase is allocated towards personal goodwill of client relationships with the remainder being split between business transition consulting support and restrictive covenants that afford protections to the buyer in terms of seller not infringing upon the agreements that they've struck. So All right, you touched on something really important there that you and I both know has come up in deals before, and that is that consulting component. <laughs> so tell me more. So from, from a tax perspective, yes, I get that there is a tax allocation to make sure the seller's compensated, money in the deal's earmarked for consulting support, what does that really mean? Like what what is assumed as part of that? Why does it matter? Uh, great question. And I'm glad that we're talking about this. Uh, hopefully it will help to prime future deals <laughs> that we work within just because it is a relatively straightforward concept, but you do get different interpretations, different preferences as far as this uh, component is concerned. So what I mean by the consulting support and why it's important is it's really just all the efforts, all the communications to introduce, uh, inform clients and endorse the buyer 
of a transaction as to what the future looks like, why you want to continue your business with the buyer, just help to alleviate any concerns and eliminate any potential breakage from client uh, attrition. So that's really the purpose. Uh, With the tax allocation, what we're doing is putting some weight into this agreement, right? We need to allocate some funds to this uh, work as well as some terms in terms of what it is that you're doing. So in order for that to occur as planned, you want to ensure that the buyer is not over asking, you know, demanding 40 to 50 hour weeks of the seller. And conversely, you want to ensure that the seller is doing as much as they have at least on paper signed on to do. Um, So that is the practical aspect there. But really, it's strictly relating to the transition of the business. It's nothing else beyond that. Which is funny because, again, to your point as a primer for clients, it is an important concept to make sure that everyone understands if you're going to sell your business, the assumption is that if I'm paying you a million dollars or $10 million, whatever the number is, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to agree to pay you a pile of money to buy your business and in the financial services space, the business, yeah, there might be desks and chairs and computers, but the thing that has value here is it's the clients. And that's an asset that can quite literally vote with its feet. And so no matter how much money I'm going to pay you to buy your business built into that is the assumption to Parker's point that you're going to stick around and help make sure that the clients move over and stay with me now, not 40 hours per week to your point, but if you didn't agree, because you and I both know that's come up in conversations before between buyers and sellers. They say, well, that was agreeing to a million dollars, but if you want me to stick around and work after closing, that's going to be extra. It's like, well, if you don't stick around and help support me after closing, at least telling the clients who I am and how amazing that I am, then I wouldn't be paying you a million dollars because it's just a client list at that point. So that's why when you touched on it, it's like, oh, we really need to go deeper into that because that is a concept that you and I both know. Some folks... Either they don't necessarily get it on the front end, but you say it once and they nod their head and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But others, I mean, especially in a seller's market where you've got sellers with, you know, increased borderline unreasonable expectations sometimes, it's nice to level set on occasion. <laughs> yeah. And you're exactly right. And, and thanks for pointing that out. To your point, really, the value of these businesses is substantiated on that support, that endorsement, because right. otherwise, like you said, it's really like, more akin to buying a lead list yeah. than buying a business. Which to be fair, don't get me wrong, you would still buy and pay for it, but you probably wouldn't pay the same million dollars as opposed to I buy a Parker's business for a million dollars and I get his ringing endorsement for the first you know client meeting. We send out a letter. We have a client appreciation event. Like That handoff goes a long way and it's a big part of why the retention rates in our industry are always north of 90%. I mean, unless it's just a money grab, which then generally leads to a disaster after closing anyway. So that's what a normal deal looks like on the deal-making side between your two peers, owner who wants to exit. Is there a normal on the succession side in your mind, Parker? Or normals? A couple examples? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, um, of course, the succession planning side of things is more open-ended. So from a time frame standpoint, that is all over the map. It can be relatively quick. It can take years. It can never happen, which is, of course, a result that we <laughs> always strive to avoid, right? Obviously, if you've engaged in the succession planning service, you're looking to exit the business at some point. So we want to help you achieve that. But as far as the structure goes, these are usually internal fractional percentage purchases. One of the biggest differentiations within the structure here is just the financing mechanism. So either externally financed for a slightly larger portion for 
one component, making sure that you have enough dollar amount on the purchase price that an external lender would finance the deal or smaller pieces along the way to build this person into an owner, uh, usually internally financed through seller financing. Just uh, again, you know, slightly more favorable terms and the ability for them to move from employee or contractor into that equity position. And you mentioned financing amounts. That's one of the things I figured we'd probably want to talk about, I'll say next, frankly, because it's a good transitional point here. When it comes to financing, we can unpack more about the different options here momentarily. But what is, from your experience, like a typical minimum lendable amount? How much are we looking for, whether it's a peer-to-peer sale internal buy-in or buy-out? Like what's what's the number? What makes it bankable? Yeah. So bankability in that sense is usually around 300,000. Okay. Here and there, we have seen lenders move into the 250, 275 range, okay. um, but that's tends to be the floor as far as what's bankable in that sense. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because I'm sure just like the work that we do, whether it is a $300,000 purchase, $3 million or $30 million, in general, it's mostly the same paperwork. It's mostly the same steps and processes. And you mm-hmm. know, banks make money on you know interest and origination fees, which is directly dependent on the size of the deal. So I'm sure for them, 275 is probably not the most attractive deal, certainly any smaller than that, because they got the same pile of paperwork to do either way. So... But financing, I mean, it's funny how much that has changed, uh, certainly in the time that you know, you've been doing it. But I did this starting back in the early 2000s, and there was no financing available. Frankly, it was a stretch to get the seller to finance the deal. <laughs> and there wasn't a plan B. And so you're trying to convince the seller to go with plan A, which is carrying the paper and getting paid out of cash flow, which they never loved doing. And then it was 2000, I want to say 2006 or seven, uh, PPC loan was, you know, the sort of the first major player entrant to the space offering financing dedicated to the financial services space. I think at the time they were doing like maybe all state, they're doing, you know, some insurance work. And so they knew about this industry. They jumped in and then 0809 happened and they jumped right back out. It was impeccable timing, unfortunately, for a brand new loan program to a brand new industry, but they came back in a big way, actually in 2012, the same time we launched Succession Resource Group and tons of industry knowledge. Again, they weren't not doing anything in the space. I think up to that point, they just weren't you know, actively pursuing it. And so they did in 2012 and they get a lot of deals done as a conventional lender, but they were one of the first ones back in the space. And then, you know, a couple more lenders into the space. Next thing you know, we got, you know, we got some loan brokers. We have banks lending directly. We have Folks like PPC, who are the direct lending arm for a small handful of banks. We got broker dealers providing capital now. You know, your former firm, Parker LPL, I mean, they're putting capital out in a big way. So a lot has happened around the financing. So I'll give you just sort of the open-ended chance to give us sort of a response or your take on financing. Is that playing a big part in most of your deals? All of your deals? None of your deals at this point? I mean, newsflash rates suck right now for anything. (laughs) And I got to imagine our industry, at least what I've seen over your shoulder, is not immune to it. Yeah, no, that's a great preamble there. And uh, to your point, with the historical perspective, the commercial financing available in the space has really gone through the roof uh, compared to where it was 10 years ago. So that alone has buoyed M&A activity in recent years. Not to mention we had that longstanding bull market. Of course, things have become more volatile recently. Right. And, and, and now we've got the headwinds from the interest rate environment. However... 
commercial financing still plays a part in, I would say, at least 50% of the deals that we work on right now. For my earlier point, seller financing often uh, brings up the rear, so fulfills any other amount of debt. There are other variations out there, of course, but these are the two primary when it comes to financing. The benefits of the commercial capital are really impactful though. A lot of these lenders will finance these deals for up to 10 years, which really helps these deals cash flow respectively. Of course, interest rates, they are higher as you'd expect, but <laughs> one benefit is that in the commercial space, the rates don't tend to move as drastically as they do in retail or personal uh, debt. So you do have that as a benefit. And again, really, we just stress that 10 year repayment period uh, as just being so helpful to weather the storm. Let's say that there was a downturn shortly after an acquisition, right. well, you're paying less money out every year. And that longer repayment period helps the amortization from the tax side of things line up at an almost one for one inflow outflow. So that helps as well. So there's a lot there. To your point, we are also seeing more in the broker dealer, RAA, IMO, really any of these sort of affiliation ecosystems mm -hmm. offering financing, which it's not the first time that's ever happened, but some folks are launching new programs or really doubling down on their existing programs, um, further bolstering those. You do have some trade-offs, I'll just say for anyone out there listening. So you may find slightly more competitive rates, which of course is a is an easily identifiable win. Streamlined underwriting. So, you know, the broker dealer, RIA, right. et cetera, they have pretty good purview into your business. They also receive your funds before you do uh, in most situations. <laughs> so that really alleviates a lot of concerns from the uh, debt security side of things. And to that end, they will generally ask for reduced debt security measures. So things like liens against residences and whatnot, those are limited. However, I did want to just point out that a lot of those benefits come at the cost of, you know, various <laughs> covenants and restrictions, things like not being able to change firms for, let's say, up to 10 years in some situations. Of course, you may be perfectly happy where you are, but having the ability to change and wanting the change are certainly two different things. Right. So we always highlight that. And then we've also think, seen things like penalty interest rates being charged back to the inception. So the rate might be 100, 150 basis points less, but if you invoke that penalty interest rate, we're talking up to the 10, 12% range, back to the inception of the loan, that certainly affects the equation pretty dramatically. Yeah, undoubtedly. So to your point, you know, the BD is now kicking in some capital, which I, I do love, again, from the seat I sit in now as a little bit of an outsider, how much faster they can finance. But like all things, you take the good with the bad. And then that fast money comes with, well, strings attached. And of course, to your point, you're in the midst of an acquisition. You're not probably, if you're even affiliated with a broker-dealer, probably not looking to change broker dealers shortly after having just you know, bought a business, having to onboard clients, try to optimize profits, but a lot can change in 10 years as we have seen. So definitely interesting considerations and just cool. Now that advisors have options when it comes to financing. I mean, before, you know, the down payment was only maybe 10 or 20% on a typical deal before there was financing available on the commercial side of things. But that was your 10 or 20%. Like you had to come up with that money out of pocket if you wanted to play the game. So kind of like real estate, like, oh, I'd love to be a real estate investor. Well, great. When you have some capital, then you can get in the game. And so that put a lot of folks on the sidelines. Now, 
I don't want to say anybody can get access to money, but if you've got a decent sized practice, you can get access to capital, which now makes everybody a buyer. So kind of cool to see how that's changed things. Cause I remember the first couple of deals I did with financing, like commercial financing. I thought, oh man, this is for the birds. <laughs> you know, I hope this doesn't have any staying power because before seller financing, I mean, in hindsight, it's not without its troubles and challenges as well, but like the seller's the underwriter. So once they say like, yeah, Parker, you seem like a really good fit for my clients. You're approved. That was it. We move on. We close. We close when we want to. Now you and I both know like you may be working on your bank docs with the financing now on October 2nd. You could very easily find yourself in November, December, still talking to the bank, waiting for approval just because you know stuff came up in your deal. So it's going to the financing side of things with eyes wide open. Definitely give yourself an option. A and then option B, just in case you need it. You touched on the rates. I mentioned the rates, newsflash, they're not great. You know, I'm sure they'll get better. That's like all things, the markets, they go up, they go down. But what are your thoughts? I mean, in terms of how they're impacting deals you're working on now, Parker, is it more deals, less deals, deals working, borderline not working, and you having to sharpen the pencils and get creative? Like, that having any impact at all? So it's certainly having an impact as yeah. far as viability of these transactions go. I wouldn't say that it's materially impacting that. I'll, I'll elaborate that on that uh, shortly here, but uh, I'll just say practically speaking that we do see a little bit more allocation to seller financing across more deals than we have in recent years, just due to the prevalence of the external financing. Mm -hmm. One component of that is when you've got the split financing, commercial and seller, let's say that the bank won't approve the buyer for the for the full purchase price. So then the seller is financing the other uh, component. And that, that has to do with a little bit the economic environment as well. So this you know, potential recession that's been on the horizon for 18, 24 months, <laughs> um, the lenders have certainly tightened up as far as their um, credit boxes, their credit requirements, some cases, reducing the repayment periods, um, you know, achieving higher ratios on their underwriting. So all of those things can contribute to potentially having not the full amount financed. And then when the seller finds out that they're going to be subordinated to the lender, you know, they're going to be in second position if this whole thing falls apart. Suddenly they, they think to them, themselves, well, I'm already financing part of the deal. Why won't I just finance the whole thing, collect all the interest? I'm absolutely exposed as is. So right. what's the difference between 40% or 100% at that point? So we are seeing practically a little bit of a shift in that regard. But when you look at the numbers, again, the higher interest rate on commercial financing is not breaking almost any of these deals. They still work out great from the numbers. Okay. As far as seller financing goes, there are some additional considerations as well. So like anything in deal making, there are trade-offs. Uh, a lot of these are for the seller. So for the seller, you're talking about time value of money. Yep. So as opposed to getting a lump sum on day one or you know shortly thereafter closing, you're receiving those dollars over time. That can help with the taxability of the sale. So some of the time you're finding some tax benefits there, but you, know, you do want to do a net present value comparison to understand the differences of the lump sum versus um, those future disbursements. So that's one consideration. Another is the debt security. So again, if you're partially seller financing, yes, you've got exposure. Of course, to eliminate that, you're going to do zero seller financing, but that's not always viable. Right. Um, but when you are holding a note out there for a buyer, 
You do want to collateralize against that debt. You do want to secure that. So there are additional instruments that are available to you um, that, of course, we help our clients out with. But it's not seamless. It's not a perfect cover for the risk here. Things can still go wrong. You still might be mired in court or arbitration along the way to reclaiming or, or you know, receiving damages, all the different types of remedies that may be available to you. So that's always something to consider. Additionally, the maintenance and facilitation of the loan. So banks are really good at uh, processing payments and uh, sending reminders and seeking those payments. They're also really good at uh, re reclamation of assets versus, you know, again, being in a seller's position. So that's another aspect. And then conversely, for the buyers, one of the biggest uh, considerations on seller financing is the repayment period. So with the external lenders, again, many will finance out to 10 years. Yep. With sellers, as generous as they are, as much as they want to make the deal work, many are not going out as far as 10 years. So that does compress the cash flow and, and does affect the net net in those earlier years. So I'm glad you touched on the I don't want to say downsides, but some of the considerations with seller financing, because many of you that is, you know, necessary pivot in today's interest rate environment or just you get sellers who, if they see the banks getting, you know, eight and a half, nine and a half percent interest, well, I'll finance it for seven and a half. And it's a good rate for me over the next, you know, six or seven years that we're doing the financing. It saves you some money, buyer. You don't have an origination fee. So it's all great, right? And then you get to the topic of like security and collateral because either the seller brings it up, their attorney tells them to bring it up. What are you seeing around security and collateral when there is seller financing? Because that's a given, obviously, in commercial financing. But the bank's going to take care of the security and collateral in those cases. Mm -hmm. With sellers, what, how do sellers protect themselves and make sure they actually get paid? Good question. So it does depend on the deal structure. First and foremost, I'll say if the buyer is an entity, which is certainly relatively common, we can talk either more today or I'm sure on another episode. And I believe we may have already touched on it, just how entities are used in this space. Um, but if it is an entity acting as the buyer, a lot of times the seller will require that the individual owners of said entity personally guarantee the debt as a means for, you know, eliminating what could be seen as a shell game. You know, hey, the entity went out of business. It no longer exists. Therefore, your debt expired with that entity well no we're going to assign the obligation to the owners individually as well just to eliminate that type of outcome yep. aside from that extremely common is a pledge agreement so with that a lot of times it's whatever is being purchased is pledged as collateral against the debt so as you would expect in circumstances where we have someone that's maybe uh, less asset rich, less uh, wealthy, they, you know, lower net worth, if you will, right. is acting as the buyer. Sometimes the business itself is not going to be enough because if a buyer is not making payments, most of the time, it's not <laughs> just due to malicious uh, yeah. intent not to do so. It has to do with faltering business performance. So as a seller to reclaim a business that its value has been degraded at that point, may not completely offset the debt. So you might actually look to also pledge additional assets, whether that's investment accounts, investment properties, real estate, some other assets that you can put on the line to help secure the debt. And I'm going to guess buyers probably don't love this, but again, from my time in that same seat, it's 
it's a necessary evil because again, you're talking about a seller transitioning their life's work and spent 20 or 30 years building this thing. And yeah, they feel comfortable with the buyer taking over their clients and their relationships, but then loaning them millions of dollars. That's, that's a whole nother level. And so it's just an interesting consideration. And frankly, nice to see now that there are at least options for advisors contemplating exiting. Cause I, I get it in years past when there was no outside financing, you'd run into this question, you know, well, Parker, why would I sell you my business for two or three times the revenue when I'm going to give you my revenue and then get paid back with my own cash? I could just stay and work another two or three years. I'm not working that hard anyway. Now, you know, the back nine of my career, now at least buyers have the ability to combat that a little bit with, well, what if I could just, you know, pay you, pay you cash? I'll borrow the money. You don't have to worry about that. I'll pay you cash. And then to your point from a cash flow management perspective, since I got a decade to pay the bank back, what if I then hired John part time and you could just transition out really slowly? So now we're seeing, you know, like all things, capital is helping grease the wheels of commerce. So it's helping, I think, get more deals done, frankly, where this industry is not exactly full of steel workers. Like you could legitimately do this until you were 70 or 80, you know, assuming you were in good mental health. Now, when you get advisors who have the ability to maybe get the lump sum, get bought out, and then the buyer can afford to keep having them work on a real part-time basis, almost kind of have your cake and eat it too. So I'm seeing more advisors at these conferences start to engage in conversations where I guarantee 10 years ago, if I had come up and said like, hey, how about I buy your business and then I'll use your money and I'll pay you back with it. They would have laughed me out of the room like they did so many other buyers. And then just nothing gets done, which is not a great alternative. One of the other kind of hot button topics since we're on it is retention clauses. So... Again, I know from the mid-year update you and I did together, it was, I want to say like 45%, just under half of the deals had a retention clause. But I know when you open up the lines for Q&A on a webinar, or we do these sessions live and in person with folks, retention clause means something different to each person or nothing to some folks who just haven't done a deal before. So want to unpack maybe just as a baseline, what's a normal retention clause? Like what the hell does that even mean? To your point, lots of different interpretations, lots of different uh, weight assigned to this based on, you know, the relationship of buyer and seller, what they've heard, what they've seen uh, across different transactions out in the market. So first and foremost, I will just start by saying that with retention clauses, this is a little off key here from what you're asking, but I will say that there are impacts to buyers and sellers aside from just the actual clause itself, one being purchase price. So a phrase that we use in deal making is that really all components of the deal are interrelated. So you change one and that's going to have impacts in other places. The retention clause is a perfect uh, segue for that in that the value of the business, the purchase price that gets paid is typically higher when there is a retention clause in place. So that's uh, akin to a buyer paying a premium on an insurance policy in the event that the business uh, transition does not perform as expected. Conversely, if there is no retention clause, a lot of time the purchase price is reduced because there's less risk to the right. seller. So depending on the circumstances, if you've got ironclad confidence that the business is going to transition, you may look to institute the retention clause as a seller, as a means to extract uh, greater economic value, expecting that your risk is relatively minimal. And the exact opposite is true for the buyer. Uh, but that said, we'll get into the actual specifics of the retention clauses. So there are four primary components to be considered. First is the assessment period. So 
what time frame are we evaluating the business transition against? Uh, metric for evaluation. So what are we measuring to determine success or failure of the transition? Attrition threshold, if any. So what that is, is typically there's some allotment for attrition just based on the fact that no one likes change, not even good change. Um, and just, you know, there's always some room for some amount of breakage in any of these transitions. And then finally, the last piece that sometimes gets forgotten or maybe not woven in uh, directly is whether or not there are going to be any deal modifications or restrictions put into place on the deal as a result of the retention clause. Just to go a step further as well, I'll, I'll give you some information on what's considered standard here. So the evaluation period is one year. That's long enough to make the introductions, make the endorsements, have some meetings, have some conversations, uh, maybe throw a retirement party for the selling advisor and really just cue things up for when they are officially absent from the firm. Typical uh, metric for evaluation is revenue. It's what the buyers care the most about. It's what they're going to use to pay their mortgage, pay their loan, pay their employees, their vendors, etc. pay themselves. Um, and then finally, the typical attrition threshold is 10% uh, before an adjustment would occur. Last thing I'll mention there is that along the lines of restrictions during the evaluation period, these are typically relating to a buyer's inability to change affiliations, change the business location, materially modify pricing, or resell any of the purchase business. So any factors that, again, would accentuate change and perhaps cause attrition. All right. So lots to unpack there. I'm glad you touched on a couple. I mean, frankly, at the very beginning, you touched on an important aspect of deal making, and that is just the shifting of risk between the parties. If the seller wants a duffel bag full of cash at closing, there's presumably a price that would make that a reasonable outcome for a buyer where they take on all the risk or inversely. Seller says, well, I, mean, I don't really want a claw back, but I'll make the concession to have one, i.e. I'll take on some of that risk, but to your point, at a bit of a price. So if I heard you right, basically three core components on those retention clauses, when do we do it? You said 12 months is most common and the other hasn't changed since when I was working on these deals with you and even back to the you know, mid 2000s when we started using these things. What, what is the target? Like, what are we shooting for? Is it 90% retention, 100%? You said 90 was the typical target. And then what are we measuring against to give us sort of the thumbs up, thumbs down on the 90%? And that would be revenue is the most common. But I know in deals we've worked on you know, in the past, that's not the only way to do it. So are there other common ways people at least evaluate creating a retention clause besides just revenue as your target? Absolutely. So I we usually lump, let's say, revenue or GDC if you're in the BD space yep. in with AUM. Those gotcha. are more or less interchangeable. Um, and the reason for that is because they are you know, business dependent, but they're also externally influenced. So market change has full impact there, right? So if both parties are agreeable to that and they just care about what ultimately happens in the real world, they don't care where or how or why it's happening, then that's typically the mechanism that gets used. Another is going back to, well, what are we measuring and why? Uh, sometime from the seller standpoint, they're saying, well, look, we're just trying to control the retention of relationships. You know, whether or not you perform well with the investment selections that you make for the clients or you drive them to take assets out, that's really on you. 
Um, what we want to understand is, are these folks sticking around? So we, we reference something called static client or static households. And this is just saying, hey, at closing, we had 100 households. They were worth 5%, 4%, 2% based on revenue or AUM. So we assigned some value to them. And then we evaluate again a year later and say, well, who's still here? Well, if some of the whale clients or top end clients left, they're mm -hmm. no longer here, then they are counted at their uh, initially assigned value as far as their, their attrition. A variable to keep in mind here, though, is that let's say, you know, you've got a client that has been considering trying out another advisor and they, they see this as the perfect opportunity to do so. Well, they're going to split their assets 50-50 between the two firms. But with the static uh, household mechanism, we're counting them as 100% retained because they still have active accounts that are funded with the buyer at the evaluation standpoint. Finally, another measurement, another metric for evaluation is net asset flow adjusted AUM. Um, and I'll touch on a couple of the drawbacks or comparison points between these in just a second here. But the net asset flow adjusted AUM is a bit like the best, the best of both worlds. So we're, we're taking market impact out of the equation. We're earmarking, let's say, 100 million of AUM at the time of closing. And this is obviously for financial advisors, less applicable for someone like a, a tax accountant. But then we're going to evaluate, well, what are the net asset flows? So what dollars came in, what dollars were distributed yep. or withdrawn? At the end of that, we're going to compare those two numbers and see what how they stack up on a ratio basis. The drawback to this technique is just that it's more complex. It can be more convoluted. Everyone has to agree on the data inputs. You start to get folks that, that really want to dissect this into many different layers. Well, if someone pulls money out for this reason, it doesn't count. If someone <laughs> pulled money out that was less than 50,000, that doesn't count. Really what that leads to is, is a greater chance of there being misalignment at the measurement point as far as what were the net asset flows. Right. So that and the component I mentioned about the static client retention, um, as well as just the market impact on that pure revenue or AUM side of things are generally uh, a lot of the conditions that you need to be aware of when you're deciding amongst these choices. So having sat through enough of these deals, is there one, like if I'm a client, I come to you, I've got just a typical fee only RIA, no major asset concentration, just a, I'll say a normal practice. Is there a recommendation that you would give? I mean, as you think about AUM, GDC, your revenue, static client list, I mean, all these myriad of options, anything you would say that stands out is like, all right, I, I'd at least start here. Like any of them that you really, that resonates with you? Well, you see, you're asking me, which <laughs> we don't always go and give our opinions during right? our consultations. We will <laughs> and we do. Our first layer to everything we do is providing you all the options, all the consequences, considerations, et cetera, so that you can make the decision and ask the questions. But I'll stop waffling here and I'll just mention that I'm a very detail-oriented person. I got my start in corporate finance. So personally, I have no qualms with getting really detailed and doing calculations, formulas, right. et cetera. So I feel personally that the net asset flows is a really fair way to do things if you can account for it properly and ensure that you know right. everything is detailed to the point where you really can't look at it two different ways. 
Um, because what that does is it measures pure client attrition. So if someone says, this is not the service or the person, the expert for me yep. in the future, they leave the firm while they're getting fully credited for all that attrition. <laughs> if they say, oh my God, I love this new uh, service model. I love the new person that I work with. And they bring half their assets from that competing advisor over. Well, you know, the buyer gets credit for that. And then finally, if investments perform well or they perform poorly, well, you're going to get credited for that as well. Um, so in my opinion, I think it's the, the fairest, but it is, I won't necessarily say the most difficult. Actually, I will. It's the most difficult to <laughs> right. ensure that there's simplicity and alignment amongst all parties. Yeah. See, folks listening, we do have opinions. We'll just keep them to ourselves until they're asked for. And so I asked Parker, and he certainly has one because he's gotten enough of these deals. But to your point, Parker, there's not like an obvious slam dunk silver bullet answer for every deal. You know, if you end up with somebody who they don't feel comfortable being able to, you know, pull or if I'm the seller, verify the reports, that might not be the route to go. But point is, frankly, on the retention clauses. It's good to be aware of them. If you've done deals before, you probably know about these things. If you haven't, hopefully you know a little bit more about them because as a buyer, you're going to want a retention clause. But statistically, you know, slightly less than half the time, you're going to get one. But you just got to factor it into the risk profile of the deal. You know, if you want a million dollars for your practice, that's what it was valued at, assuming that there's a retention clause. Can you still sell it without a retention clause? Well, sure, but it's probably not going to be a million dollars. So worth factoring that in. In talking about how we shift risk, one of the other things I wanted to touch on, Parker, because you, you're generally with your team pretty compartmentalized on the transaction side, working on these peer-to-peer deals, as in folks who know each other or you know knew each other at some point, and they have come together and decided, I'm going to sell and you're going to buy, and we want to do a deal together. SRG will then help us facilitate the price and the terms, the taxes, like the whole deal structure that works for both of us. You know, as cliche as it sounds, trying to get to a, a win-win. Now, the hard part is having done these deals, you know, myself now for 20 years, I know there's no such thing as a win-win. If you both walk away thinking you won, one of you lost and you just don't know it yet. So really what we're looking for is an outcome where you're both equally unhappy. And so I feel like in a lot of the transactions, the peer-to-peer stuff, and I'll be curious about your perspective on this, Parker, I feel like there is a lot or some money, but oftentimes a lot of money that's left on the table because of the existing relationship between the parties. Now, it's not always true because you and I both know there's been a couple of the deals where you're thinking, when the hell is the buyer paying this amount of money for this practice? But most of the deals, it's, it's the opposite. We valued it at a million or five million, and they're selling it for that or something less when you and I both know full well, and sometimes even the client, there is a ready and willing market out there. And I'm not just talking about our market. We can talk about our market, like our market on the seller advocacy team, like they're getting 20, 30% more for these practices than they're currently being valued at because the deal is just cash flow. And again, you're the corporate finance guy, so you run the numbers. What are your thoughts on the deals you're putting together? Are they overvalued, undervalued? And I'm talking generally, obviously, because I know the outliers. Great, great lead in there and a couple of different things to evaluate or discuss. So first of all, I'll say that the bulk of the deals that we work within, because the market environment is still seller favorable, of course, that's a big focus for the webinars that we do and the data that we mine and uh, publish against. But as of now, still a seller's market, still seeing values trending upward to a degree, despite some of the headwinds. 
So I'll say the bulk of the deals that we work on are above average as far as what the average multiple comes out to on evaluation. Um, just because again, there are factors, folks know that there are a lot of buyers out there, but that's just one layer. But as far as your right. question in, in terms of what happens when two folks work together on a deal, you know, someone that they know within the industry, well, of course there are benefits to that. You may have a longstanding strong relationship Hopefully you've got great alignment and understanding within your business ethics and practices. Periodically, we see folks that get along great as friends and peers, but once they dig a little deeper into just how the other person runs their business, it doesn't quite align as closely as they thought it did. So that's one right. thing to be considerate of because you're, you're just not going to get to that level of due diligence when you're not in the middle of a transaction along the way. So some of the times eyes get opened in that sense. Another thing that we see is that this pre-existing relationship can act as a stepping stone to influence negotiations. It can lead to uh, tense, awkward, and even problematic outcomes. So the way we think about that, and it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, is that when a buyer is pre-selected, the seller is more likely to make the terms of the sale fit this selected buyer, as opposed to optimizing their preferred outcomes and ensuring the buyer is best suited for their clients. Again, yeah. they may feel that the buyer is a good match for their clients, but because they haven't evaluated a number of other options, mm -hmm. it's difficult to compare. Right. It's like you get the receptionist admin that gets referred into you and they come in, they were referred in, you have a good interview and you hire them. I mean, you may have just gotten lucky because frankly, you know, most of us have had that referral and we generally hired that person. But unless you're interviewing the other candidates out there, you just don't know. And frankly, hiring staff is one thing, but when you were talking about selling your business, which you only get to do once, if you do it right, it just, it seems like it's worth putting in the time and effort, not even so much to maximize the value. Although again, I don't want to throw shade at that topic either. Like I feel like we get so many of these advisors who are selling saying, oh, you know, I, I don't need the money. If you don't need it, put me on hold real quick. Go grab your spouse. Spouse doesn't care. Grab your kids. If they don't care and they'll care, but let's just say they didn't care. Get your favorite charity on the phone, get your church on the phone. You would prefer to give the additional 100,000, 500,000 in value you could get out of this business. You'd be, you prefer to give that money to your peer in the industry than any of those other stakeholders in your life. Not a chance. So I think it's just about, you know, framing that up to know that that value is on the table. Like, and it's not a lot of work to go get it, but it's, it's work. I mean, as opposed to just hitting the easy button and selling to the guy or gal down the hall from you that's in your office, I get it. But I feel like, frankly, I mean, not everybody listening to this necessarily is technically a fiduciary, but I mean, as a fiduciary or in the best interest of your clients, whatever bifurcation we need to make, it's to make sure your clients are well taken care of in your absence and, and telling yourself that, you know, the colleague who you've known for 20 years is that person you're the problem is you're not delusional like you you know they may not be the best person you think they probably are you've got a high level of trust just go validate it again you get one shot at this if you talk to 20 or 30 other hypothetical buyers that are interested and they're a great fit but they can't afford it fine got it if they can afford it but they're not a great fit great got it but i would tell you i don't think we've had one yet that listed their practice, they went through that process and then said, you know what? Actually, the buyer that I was originally talking to, they're still the best candidate and they're the best offer. Like literally never. And I'm now, I want to say in your 20 of doing this, 
have never seen that. So it's just, it's an interesting take to see because I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I got to say probably 80% of our deals or more are the peer-to-peer stuff. I mean, Parker, you work on helping like put the finances and the contracts and stuff together for both of them. I mean, it's definitely more heavily weighted on the peer-to-peer stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And you would expect that, right? right? Obviously, the financial services, professional services, businesses are entirely dependent on relationships. Therefore, that extends to peers of course. Uh, across conferences, et cetera, over all the years. So we are not surprised by any of this. So to your point, yeah, <laughs> I would say 80-20, 85-15, something along that, that yeah. line in terms of allocation between the two. The other point I wanted to make just to close this out, unless you Please. had something else, was we talked a lot about price during this and, and you yep. did touch on you know having the best fit for the clients, but there's also, along with price, there's deal terms. And some of the time, the terms can really make a strong impact as far as the taxable outcome of the event, as far as what the seller is required to provide as client transition support, as far as amenability to any restrictions or other terms that that are really impactful for the deal. So that's the other side of the coin as well, that if you go with a predetermined buyer, you may not have as much latitude to evaluate or enjoy those components. Yeah, fair. So let's close this out with, we touched on earlier in the session, I think when you had brought up maybe the deal structure and the taxes, the seller's role post-sale and making sure that they sort of knew and understood that they're generally committed for six to 12 months post-closing to support the transition as part of that purchase price, whether it's you know listed and you're getting you know full fair market value or it's a peer-to-peer deal. Like that's pretty much always assumed, certainly assumed when these things are valued, that there'll be some handoff. What about other post-sale roles for the seller? I I know you see these sellers staying on sometimes beyond just that transition period. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of close this out with that question. What What are you seeing? Are sellers staying on longer than normal, longer than most people would typically expect, shorter? What are you seeing? Yeah, no, uh, we are seeing longer durations of post-sale involvement in the business by more buyers statistically than we've seen in earlier years. Part of that's driven by a increase in sales occurring, partly because sellers are looking to take advantage of a market environment that's largely favorable for them right now, shedding their responsibilities as a business owner. So all the pieces of the puzzle that you really don't enjoy while still maintaining that presence in the role that you are passionate about. And to further this concept, what this does is it actually opens the door for remote buyers that want or need time to develop a capable onsite team. So a remote acquirer, that really opens the door there. So for that reason, we are seeing more sell and be retained types of structures. Of course, this has always been something in the market, but we are seeing an uptick there. Um, As far as what that entails, the most common thing that you see is a client referral agreement. There are restrictions, there can be restrictions there as far as how you're compensated. It can be a little restrictive for someone who's (laughs) looking to fully just sunset and sail away and grow out the ponytail, like we like to say. Um, So that's the most common. Secondarily, uh, business development or rainmaking. So again, that's usually in conjunction with some other element where the seller is staying on. And those things are support services, things like portfolio management, client service, operations, mentorship of, of junior personnel. So 
those are the most common things that we see. And yeah, the, the time frame is a little bit longer than it's been. It's creeping upwards. What about cash flow? I mean, does that keeping the seller on in even a reduced capacity? I, mean, I know you mentioned the sort of referral arrangement, and that's, I presume, a percentage of new business. So that's not going to impact cash flow per se, because that's new money from new clients. But if you're going to stay on and mentor and train, if you're going to stay on and service clients, the investment committee, or you know anything like that, or all of those things, that's it's probably not a percentage of new business, because there's not any new, new business to be had. That would be probably hourly salary that's going to eat into cash flow. Are you seeing those types of arrangements then with materially lower purchase prices as a result? Are they able to make both those things work? Yeah. So those two elements certainly have interactivity amongst each other. What usually happens is the seller is looking to prioritize the terms of the sale. So they don't necessarily want to uh, impact the purchase price as much as they will be more willing to um, take a reduced package for that ongoing support. They're saying, look, I could retire today. So I want to monetize the business on my terms and achieve the goals that I have for that liquidation. Conversely, some of the time the buyer has a need for the seller, again, in that remote acquisition uh, scenario. But let's just say it's not a remote acquisition. More often than not, we see that compensation package for the ongoing work being reduced to offset the preferred sale terms. Got it. Okay. Well, folks, there are probably another 20 or 30 things that Parker and I could unpack. We'll save that for part two of this. But as an initial primer on what's happening in the market, mergers, acquisitions, even a little bit on succession planning today with the deal terms specifically, you can see, you know, Parker could hang with the best of them. He's been doing a lot of these deals. Parker, I want to give just maybe a little bit more of your background. I know you touched on like the corporate finance in a past life, but you've been on the advisor side. You've been on the corporate finance side. You've worked, you know, alongside and with me for you know better part of a year and something. Like you've had an interesting journey. And I think it is very useful, frankly, to the clients that get the opportunity to work with you and your team. Yeah, no, of course. I uh expected you may have touched on that at the opening there, but thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um <laughs> so my background really, like I mentioned, got started in corporate finance, got a um, bachelor's degree in economics. So went into corporate finance at LPL Financial, so a large independent broker dealer, helped to guide and evaluate the economics for that firm for several years, made many contacts. I covered contacts throughout the firm. I covered 65% of the firm at at different points. So ultimately aligned really well with, with different business units there, one of which being our strategic business solutions group which really is like an in-house SRG at LPL. So business valuations, mergers, acquisitions, succession planning, consulting, capital. They actually rolled capital into that group. So all of those elements, I was performing business valuations. So understanding the drivers there, consulting our clients, and then also getting my foray into uh, M&A and succession planning consulting there. Ultimately, I was very interested in going the advisor route. I did get securities licensed. Uh, I did actually thereafter help LPL launch a uh, a new program offering called Virtual CFO. So acting as an outsourced fractional CFO and strategic guide for yeah. our advisors. So worked to launch that program, helped design it from the ground up. One of the advisors I was working with there saw the potential in me for the advisor side of things. Um, so recruited me into the firm. I worked there for a handful of years as a servicing advisor, so got to see the day in, day out, 
challenges, opportunities, um, helped evaluate the sale of one of our, our niches to other firms, helped develop marketing uh, for new niches that we were working on, center of influence, uh, networking, a bunch of different things in that light. Ultimately, I did find that I preferred the business to business consulting over the retail consulting, um, sure. which is part of what brought me to SRG. So the opportunity uh, came up a couple of years ago to join SRG. And then the rest is history. Like you said, we've been working with you, uh, developing our mergers, acquisition and succession resources and capabilities. And uh, like you mentioned, I run the team here now. Well, perfect. I like to put that at the end because there's just, frankly, you know, too much good content you've got that I want to make sure we, if we need to cut anything, we're going to cut the boring stuff towards the end of it. So, but yeah, glad we could fit it in because you do have, you know, a wealth of knowledge and it's, I mean, it's like all of us, it's an interesting journey, but yours is a particularly unique and appropriate journey for where you ended up, whether you meant to do it or not. So uh, appreciate everyone taking the time to listen to our session today with uh, myself, David Grout Jr., president of Succession Resource Group and Parker Fino from our transaction advisory team. You know where to find us, uh, obviously, successionresource.com. Lots of good information there, as well as the chat window in case you need to chat with somebody on our team. They can get you all lined up there. Social media, I say that. I mean, we're certainly on Facebook and Instagram and everything else. But generally, LinkedIn is where you're going to find us posting all of our latest and greatest content, upcoming webinars, new cool podcasts like this one. Uh, we'll all be there. So without further ado, going to wrap things up. Parker, thanks for carving out time. I'll let you get back to work. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back to you soon. And that concludes another episode of SRG Offscript. We hope you found this episode both interesting and valuable. We encourage you to check out our website at successionresource.com or, of course, connect with us on social for the latest happenings at SRG. If you just can't get enough of SRG Offscript, we invite you to join our monthly Q&A webinar, SRG Offscript Live, where we address your questions sparked by the latest podcast topic. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did recording it, please leave us a review and tell your industry friends about us. Your support helps us continue to bring you the best content possible. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Succession Resource Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of an expert with any questions you may have. As always, we at SRG stand ready to help when you're ready.